Well, good evening. It's good to see you tonight. Welcome to our Wednesday night Bible study again. I missed y'all last Wednesday night. Didn't get to have it, and it's good to be back and study God's Word together. So, good to see those of you here in person, and I know we always have a good crowd on online joining us for Wednesday night Bible study as well, so we want to welcome you also. Gospel of John, we're to now chapter 10, and uh, the portrait of Jesus, the uh, Gospel of John we're looking at, and, and basically a picture of Christ based on what he said. And tonight we're going to get into a passage. Uh, he really said a lot. There's a lot in there. And we'll look at the 42 verses of chapter 10, the Gospel of John tonight. I want to remind you, as soon as we're finished with this, we'll have one chapter a week that will take us for 11 more weeks into through the end of January. And then starting in February, we'll start looking at the uh, at the book of Revelation, chapter by chapter. I think you're going to find that to be interesting. That will start in February. And so Wednesday nights in February, we'll start looking at Revelation. And there's a lot to talk about in there, so that'll be fun also. But let's have a word of prayer, and we'll pick up with chapter 10 of John tonight. Let's pray together. God, it is good to be your people, the sheep of your pasture. And I pray tonight as we talk about the sheep and the good shepherd, Lord, from this passage, that you will teach us what you want us to know. God, just help us to, to have the abundant life that you have promised to us and that you want so desperately for us to have as your children. So tonight I pray, Lord, that you'll give that to us. Anything on our minds that would keep us from listening to you tonight, I pray that you would remove that. Help us to give you and your word our undivided attention. I thank you for those who are in our worship center. And I pray for those, Father, who are also joining us by live stream, that you would bless our time together this evening. Holy Spirit, be our teacher. We realize you're the one that brings truth to our hearts and minds, and I pray that you'll do that this evening as well. Thank you again for Christ, his atoning sacrifice, and what it means to us. Thankful to be your children. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, first of all, let's look at letter A on your outline. I am the good shepherd, the first 21 verses of the Gospel of John chapter 10. Now, this kind of comeback has been two weeks since we've, since we've studied uh, the Gospel of John. So let's come back to where we were because the last several chapters was the same incident, the same event was going on. And you may remember that it was the Feast of Tabernacles. To the Jews, the Feast of Tabernacles would take place in Jerusalem. It would be a feast that you're required to go back and celebrate. It was more of a joyous time because they were remembering the Old Testament wanderings of their forefathers in the wilderness. You remember the Old Testament that they, Moses led them to the wilderness, and so they, they remembered that and they celebrated that. So they would put up temporary booths or shelters that they would sleep in at night or they would just have up. Uh, most of the time, uh, today, uh, uh, modern Jews will just will erect the, the, uh, the shelter. In these days, they pretty well stayed in them through the time. Sometimes they do today as well. But a lot of overtones of this Feast of Tabernacles, it was a lot of lights, it was water, uh, it was a lot of imagery uh, showing God's provision for His people. And so, it was the promise that one day God is going to provide a Messiah for, the, for His people to come. So it was heavily messianic, this whole celebration was. So it's not a coincidence or it's not an accident that Jesus, for three chapters of John, is talking about being that Messiah, talking about being the one, I am the, 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 the water of life, I am the, the, the light of the world, all of that imagery talking about his Messiahship, telling them I'm the Messiah that God has promised. 
So that's where we are. It's still, it is just now wrapped up. It's only seven days long. You travel there to Jerusalem. You celebrate seven days. And the eighth day is kind of a packing up, but still a celebration. It's called the day over, the day after the, the observance. And so you're packing up, you're getting ready to go back. And so it's during this time frame now, Jesus talks about and uses another image that the Israelites would be very familiar with. And that is the image of a shepherd and sheep. Now, you go to Israel today, you still see that. You're driving along in the tour bus, and there's a shepherd with sheep on the, on the hillside. And, you know, you see them everywhere. Even in the cities, you see them walking through the towns. And so, the imagery of a shepherd and sheep had been around in Israel, still is in Israel, and been around for a long, long time. If you go all the way back in the Old Testament, one of the favorite images that God used of His people was, He's the shepherd, and they're the sheep. In Ezekiel 34, Ezekiel 37, both of those chapters stated that one day there would be a descendant of David who would come along who would shepherd the people of God. Well, that was Jesus, obviously. But Ezekiel talked about it, two chapters, 34 and 37. So Jesus now uses that imagery to let everybody know the, the descendant of David, which he was, who was prophesied to come, I'm here. I'm the Messiah. So this passage talks a lot about the good shepherd is here, and that's why the imagery of that. So let's look at that. The first 10 verses uh, especially talks about it. So let's look a little more closely, starting in verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you. Now, remember, whenever Jesus says, verily, verily, in the King James, or truly, truly, in the ESV, or most assuredly, I say to you in the NIV, that phrase signals something. It signals that what is to follow is really important. So anytime something is repeated in Scripture, what follows is really important. And so he says, truly, truly, your ears should perk up. Every time he says that, your ears should perk up because what follows in his mind is vitally important. If it's important to Jesus, it should be important to us. So listen carefully at what he says. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. Let me give you the picture. What is a sheepfold? Well, the Israelites, uh, as you know, uh, had, many of them had sheep, and they kept the sheep not near the main house, but away from the main house in what they would put up in what they would call a sheep fold. It was three on three sides. It was high walls, so the sheep, so nothing could, not necessarily they could get out, but, but so nothing could get in to get them. High walls on three sides, and on the fourth side, you have a door. You have an entrance, one way in and one way out. Very high on the sides. This was called a sheepfold. wasn't near the house. And so most Jewish families would tend to the sheep if you were a shepherd. You would tend to the sheep most of the time. Sometimes if you had to go off somewhere, if you couldn't be with them 24-7, it was time to put them in the sheepfold, you would hire somebody to watch them for you. They were called the hired servants or the hirelings. They didn't really 
care about your sheep. They just want, they're just, it's a transaction. They're making money. Okay, they're watching your sheep. Make sure nothing gets them. Don't care about the sheep, but they, they watch them for you while you have to go on a trip. It was also common for not every family to put up a sheepfold. Sometimes families would go together, build one big sheepfold, so you would have multiple flocks in one sheepfold. Four families, five families, up to ten families could have their flocks in a sheepfold. How did you distinguish between, if, if they're all mixed together, how did you know which one, ones were yours and which ones were your neighbor's? Well, I'll talk about that in a moment. So that's the picture of the sheepfold. John doesn't explain what a sheepfold is to us because they knew very well as he's writing, we know exactly what a sheepfold is. So he didn't explain it. Jesus just simply said, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, remember there's only one door, but climbs up, you'd have to, it's the walls were high, climbs up another way, has to be a thief and a robber, someone who's after the sheep. Now here's the picture. Who had Jesus just been talking with? Religious leaders, right? Pharisees, scribes. They were wanting to kill Jesus. And so Jesus is telling them that the people of Israel, the sheep, he's the good shepherd, and the thieves and the robbers are the religious leaders trying to take life away from them rather than give life to them. Now, thieves and robbers, if you think about it, they have different motives, right? A thief the word kleptos is used. We get the word kleptomaniac from it, which implied some kind of deception to take what you have. A robber, they're not worried about deception. They'll take it by violence. They'll hold your gunpoint. So they both have the same motive, take what you have. They just approached it in different ways. So Jesus used both terms to describe the religious leaders. Some of them will violently try to take life away from you. Others, spiritual life away from you. Others are doing it subtly, but their, their motive is the same. So the thieves and robbers obviously were the religious leaders. So with that in mind now, Jesus continues the analogy. Verse 2. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. Who's the gatekeeper? They also, with the sheepfolds, they would hire somebody as if you had these, if you have 10 families that have all their flocks in there, they would hire a gatekeeper to stand at the gate and as the sheep would go in, make sure they all made it. Or if they're coming out, they would count the sheep on the way out as you're bringing their sheep just to make sure all of your flock is there and all of your neighbor's flock's there. They had one job, make sure this, all the sheep made it in and all the sheep made it out. Those were called the gatekeepers. Who's Jesus talking about as the gatekeeper here? Well, don't really know. Most theologians believe he was probably referring to John the Baptist. You remember John the Baptist. He was the one that introduced Jesus. He was the one, the forerunner, that was introducing the shepherd to us. And he was the one that uh, had disciples, sheep, that followed Christ as well. So a lot of theologians think that Jesus is referring to the gatekeeper in this analogy as John the Baptist. What's well, possible, very, very, very well could have been. But he says, to him, the gatekeeper opens, 
because you trust the gatekeeper. The sheep hears his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. So how did you distinguish your sheep from your neighbor's sheep? Very simple. You name them. And they knew your voice. That you were so familiar with them that whenever you spoke, that they would hear your voice. The sheep would perk up. One neighbor would stand there. They would call out. And the sheep that recognized that voice, they would come. And then you would stand there and you would call out. You'd have a distinctive call. Sometimes it was a whistle. In biblical days, you would whistle in a certain way. And your sheep knew that whistle or they knew that voice. And whenever they heard it, their ears perked up. Ah, that's me. And they came out. It's amazing. In fact, they still do that today in a lot of ways. In fact, they name their sheep. We name, we name dogs and cats and things like that. In fact, you wouldn't have a dog and not name it, would you? They wouldn't have a sheep and not name it. Part of the family. That's why the story of David and Nathan was so, so impactful because sheep many times were part of the family. They were your livelihood and they were a part of your family and you named them. And so he called them by their names and they would listen and follow. Of course, the analogy for us is strong, isn't it? If you're, if you're a sheep of his fold, you recognize him when he speaks, don't you? you, hope you I hope you recognize his voice because he says, if you hear the voice of an enemy, you're in trouble. And I hope whenever you listen, you're listening to the voice of God. And, and because there are a lot of voices you can hear today in our culture. And I hope you're listening to his voice. His voice leads to life, and his voice is going to be best for you. Now, the enemy is not. The enemy doesn't care about you. But the enemy will sometimes try to imitate the voice of God so you listen to the wrong ones. And you know, pastoring churches for these years, there, there have been a lot of believers listening to the wrong voice, and their life is going down the wrong track. And I hope that doesn't happen to you. So make sure the voices you listen to when somebody calls you spiritually is going to be the voice of your shepherd. So he goes on in verse 3, uh, they, he, they hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Verse 5, or rather verse 4, when he has brought all of his own sheep, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow. They will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Now, hold on a second. Time out. Wait a minute. Is, is Jesus telling us that if you're truly saved, you will never listen to another voice but his? Well, that's what some people believe that he's saying here. And some people say if you fall away from the faith, any at all, it means you're not saved. Well, is that consistent with the rest of Scripture? Not really. A couple of thoughts. One is, first of all, he's using a figure of speech. You have to be careful building an entire theological doctrine on what Jesus intended to be just a figure of speech. But the second thing is, if it was, if it was impossible for a true believer of Jesus to ever fall away from the faith, why are there so many warnings against it in the New Testament? That makes sense. If it's not even possible, why are we warned? So I don't think that's what he's talking about here. 
I don't think he's saying if you're a true, if you're, if you ever wander in your faith, you're lost. I, probably many of us have had moments in our lives where we've wandered away and recommitted our lives and came back to. I, I did. I had it. I was saved at nine, but I wandered through some of my teen years and recommitted my life and came back to the Lord. I wasn't lost. I still heard His voice. I didn't always obey it, but I always heard it. And so I don't think He's telling us that if you ever have a time that you ever wonder any at all, it means you're lost. Because some take this verses four and five to mean that. So, verse 6 then, after Jesus said this, John tells us this figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. Why didn't they understand it? They had all the Old Testament on shepherds and sheep. In fact, the Old Testament is full of good shepherds and bad shepherds. I'm reading through Jeremiah now, just in my regular personal study of, of the Word. And Jeremiah talks about these bad shepherds, that, that these bad shepherds are leading you the wrong way. And, and I'm going to give you a good shepherd who will lead you with knowledge and understanding. Just read that last night. And so, so they have the picture of good shepherds and bad shepherds. Why would they not get this? But they didn't understand that he was telling them that he's the Messiah shepherd that God has sent. Now, notice something interesting in verse 6. In verse 6, John says, this figure of speech Jesus used with them, he does not call it a parable. Why? In fact, figure of speech is only used in the gospel of John. No other, no other gospel. The rest of the gospels call them parables. John never uses the word parable. He uses the word figure of speech over and over. All the other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, they use the word parable and never use the word figure of speech. What's the difference? A parable was, a, was very simple. It's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Figures of speech were different. They were deep. They were not simple. They were complicated. They were deep, and there was underlying levels of meaning. A parable, you get the main meaning, you got it. But in figures of speech, there were layers you could dig down into as to what was being said. And so whenever Jesus spoke in John, there were layers to what he said. But in the rest of them, they were parables. And the different words, there were different Greek words that were used. And so John specifically tells us, what Jesus spoke here has a lot of underlying levels to what he meant. They were figures of speech. Then verse 7. So Jesus said to them again, they didn't get it, so he says it again. Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Now, many times when shepherds at night, they would watch the sheep fold themselves. And rather than staying in the house, they would actually stay with the sheep, especially if they thought there were wolves or anything else that, that would, you know, get the, the, uh, the, the sheep at night. If they saw them around, if they felt like there was excessive danger, many times they would sleep with the sheep rather than in their house. And here's how they did it. They would lay down in front of the door. The one door in, they would lay down in front of the door and sleep. Anything would have to go over them to get to the sheep. And so they were literally a human door. They would lay there and they would be the door to the sheepfold. 
And so Jesus used this imagery that I am the door of the sheep. Anything that gets to my sheep, my children, have to go through me first. If it's an enemy, if it's something trying to get them to devour them, they have to go over me first to get there. That's kind of comforting thought, isn't it? That your enemy doesn't have free access to you as a believer in Christ. He has to go through Christ, any kind of access he has to you, because you're in Christ as a, as a believer. I am the door of the sheep. Verse 8, all who came before me are thieves and robbers, religious leaders, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. It's twice he's told us that. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. In other words, you can't be saved by the religious leaders or by Judaism or by religion. It's a relationship. If anyone enters by me, he is saved. And will go in and out and find pasture. Now, Judaism didn't allow you to go in and out. It was very rigid. You were in and you were trapped by all these 613 laws and rules and regulations. You didn't have life. You were trapped. And so, Jesus is telling them, if you trust me... You can go in and out and have life. The letter of the law kills, Jesus said. I give life. And so he is juxtaposing here Judaism, religion, and Christianity, Christ. And he says you can go in and out, find pasture. Verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life. And have it abundantly. In other words, I didn't come to restrain you. I didn't come to put 613 laws on you and handcuff you. I came that you would have freedom to go in and out of my sheepfold and enjoy life. And that's why Christ came. The word abundant is interesting there. It's a, it's a, uh, it's a mathematic term. It's a term of mathematics. It literally means a surplus. Over and above military terms, it's parisos is the Greek word. They use parisos in military terms to someone who outranked you, a superior. In mathematics, it was a surplus. It was something you had left over that was a benefit. And so Jesus said, I came to give you life that outranks all other kinds of life. And I came to give you a surplus to life that only I can give. And whenever you're in Jesus kind of life we live, isn't it? Spiritually, a life of abundance. Then look at verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, hold on a second. Shepherds never sacrifice their lives for the sheep. The sheep sacrificed for the shepherds. Right? How was a person made right with God in the Old Testament? A sheep sacrifice. So, in the Old Testament, humans had life because sheep died. And Jesus turns it around. Sheep have life because the shepherd died. So, verse 11, you and I have heard it so much. Oh, oh yeah, that's great. He gave his life for us. That was revolutionary. 
He would have said that. They'd be going, what? Shepherd dying for sheep? No, no, no. Sheep die to justify humans. Not humans dying to justify sheep. And so it was, it was revolutionary in the fact that he said that. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The only way a shepherd would die would be by accident. Not on purpose. And Jesus said he did it purposefully. Verse 12, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, um, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Remember I told you as we started, they would hire a hired hand, a hireling to watch the sheep. They didn't care about the sheep. So if there was extreme danger that came rather than giving their lives, the hired hand says, I'm just in it for what I'm going to get anyway. And if it comes down to me or a wolf, okay, wolf can have the sheep. I'm out of here. And Jesus said, enemies do that. And religious leaders, by the way, didn't care about the people. They cared about the laws, that the laws would be fulfilled. They didn't care whether the people kept the laws or not. They just wanted to make sure the laws were kept. They didn't care about the people. And so the hirelings were the religious leaders. And Jesus said, they'll not give their lives for you. A religious leader would never give his life for a Jew. And so it was Jesus who gave himself for the sheep. So you see him turning what would be going on here. Hired hands were selfish. They were in it for what they could get out of it. And then Jesus, Jesus said in verse 14, again, I am the good shepherd. That's twice he's told us he's the door and twice he's told us he's the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. The word know there is interesting. It's gnosko. It's the, it means intimate knowledge. In fact, it's, it's the word to have a sexual relationship with someone if you remember in the Old Testament, it says Adam knew Eve and she conceived and had children. The word know meant in such an intimate relationship that no one else shared. And so Jesus said, I have an intimate relationship with my sheep. I know you and you know me. It's an intimate knowledge. It's not just a head, oh yeah, I know that Jesus is the Savior. No, no, it's a personal commitment you make to that shepherd. And that's why it's important to have that. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father, verse 15, knows me and I know the Father. There's that intimacy. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 16, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. Who on earth is the other sheep? Who are these other sheep that Jesus have? Any guesses? Gentiles, absolutely. We got a sharp group here tonight. Gentiles, absolutely. Not just the Jews. If you're non-Jewish and you receive Jesus as shepherd, you hear his voice just like a Jew does. And so it's the Gentiles. So he said there will be one flock and one shepherd. There's not a Jewish heaven and a Gentile heaven. There's not a Jewish church and a Gentile church. There's one church of Jesus Christ and there's one heaven where Jesus is. One flock and one shepherd. Verse 17, for this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Verse 18, no one takes it from me. In other words, he's going to be killed. 
but they really didn't take his life. He said, I laid it down of my own accord. In other words, as, they, as the Roman soldiers were arresting him to crucify him, at any moment, he had the power to just say one word or snap his fingers and they would have been obliterated and he could have walked off. He had the power to do that. So they didn't really take his life. He gave it up willingly of his own accord. I have authority, he said, verse 18, to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my father. Well, those 18 verses, those are a mouthful, right? It's a lot in there. And here is their response to what he said, verse 19. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon. He's insane. Why listen to him? But others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? It's a good question. No, they can't. And so you see a response to Christ in the New Testament just like you see today. Whenever Jesus makes a statement that I'm the only way to heaven, there were some who didn't believe him and said he's crazy, and there were others that says, no, he's right. And today, whenever I stand or any other preacher stands and says, you must receive Christ to go to heaven, there will be some that believe it and some that say that's crazy, it's ludicrous. Why there, he doesn't need to be so inclusive. Any way can, can get to heaven. And, and so you have all of what culture says today. Same responses to Christ today as they had then. Division. Some believed him and some didn't. I don't know about you tonight. I believe him. I believe he's the only way. I believe he's the door of the sheep. I believe he gave his life for us. And he's the only way to heaven. So go to letter B on your outline. We'll look at the last verses and we'll close. Verses 10, 22 to 42. I and the Father are one. Now, in this last section that we're going to look at, verses 22 to 42, Jesus says, I'm the Messiah, which, remember, they would have been looking for, and I'm the Son of God. And you're going to see both of those come out strongly. Verse 22, at that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. So, time out for a second. We've now moved. From the Feast of Tabernacles to the Feast of Dedication. So there's a time gap between verse 21 and 22. We know that. We're told that. So now the time gap goes all the way to the, the, the next uh, uh, festival, which was the Feast of Dedication. What was the Feast of Dedication? Hanukkah, absolutely. Also called the Feast of Lights, another Jewish festival. Where did Hanukkah develop? Well, if you, re you may not remember the story, or you might remember the story. But from the time the Old Testament ended to the time the New Testament began, that 400-year period between Old and New is called the intertestamental period, obviously. It's between the Testaments. During that time frame, the, the Romans were trying to force the Jews into giving up their faith, giving up their heritage, giving up everything they believed in. And so they tried to force them to do it. They forced what was called Hellenism. Hellenism is a Greek way of life. And they're trying to make all of their subjects live a Greek way of life. And the Jews obviously didn't want to do that. They felt like it was compromising their faith. So they were constantly forced to try to give up their Judaism to become more Greek-like. On one occasion, the king of Syria, 
came in, a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, and he tried to force the Jews to give up their faith. And so what he did was he tried to desecrate as best he could the Jewish faith. How would you do that? Well, you would go into their temple and you would desecrate their temple. What specifically would you do? You'd attack their worship. So he went in and he tried to desecrate their altar of the temple. How? Well, Jews do not eat meat, pork. Pork is unclean. Uh, and so he sacrificed a pig on the Jewish altar. Just as a way of saying, get rid of your faith. Everything you consider unclean. And so it was an act of desecration and it infuriated the Jews. Well, there was an old priest by the name of Judas Maccabeus. He rose up and said, I'm, they may take it, but I'm not going to take it. And he drew out a sword and he killed one of the soldiers right there at the altar. And the war was on. Guerrilla warfare known as the Maccabean Revolt because the old priest's name was Judas Maccabeus. And so he, they fought off the, the, uh, everyone in the temple area. They chased them out. And they for momentarily preserved the Jewish faith and the true worship of, 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 of their temple. So they have always honored that old priest uh, by the name of Judas Maccabeus. And so they developed a festival during the intertestamental period known as the Feast of Lights, commemorating the time that the old priest drove out the invaders and saved the Jewish faith. So that's, and so today, even today, they still honor that at Hanukkah at late December, early January. So we're told now it is the celebration of Hanukkah. And it says in verse 22, it was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. Why would John tell us it's winter? It doesn't matter, does it? Why would he say that? Well, most of the time Jesus taught it was, it had been summertime or warmer weather. It's warm most of the time. The, the, the weather in, in Israel is the same latitude as San Antonio. So San Antonio is pretty mild most of the year weather-wise, and Israel is too. So Jesus would be out teaching in the open air because it's pretty warm. But it tells us in this particular passage it was winter, and so he was inside the colonnade of Solomon. Some theologians see um, they see imagery in that. He's talking about the frigidity or the coldness of the law and the religious leaders. Well, maybe. Maybe that's why we're told that. We don't know why we're told that it was winter specifically and Jesus was in the temple area. Might have just been telling us why he was in the temple area because it's cold outside. Verse 24. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ... Tell us plainly. I've had people tell me that before. You know, if Jesus really is the right way to go and all the others wrong, why don't he just strike, make something happen right now so I know very plainly he's the way to go? That's the question they had. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you did not believe. He's told us today many times. People still don't believe. I told you, you don't believe. And then Jesus said, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. 
Now, there's always been a debate back and forth about salvation. Are we one of Jesus' sheep because we choose to believe, or are we one of his sheep because he predestined us to believe? And the answer is yes. It's both. C.S. Lewis and others said, I, I, I believe that you have Calvinism, you have Arminianism. I believe there is a middle ground today in systematic theology called congruism that pulls both of them together, which I believe is the biblical approach. C.S. Lewis said, quote, divine election and human responsibility are perfectly balanced in Scripture. And so the human viewpoint is we are sheep by believing in Jesus and the divine viewpoint is we believe in Jesus because we're one of his sheep. It's both. And here he brings them together. You didn't believe me because you're not one of my sheep. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Folks, verse 28 is one of the strongest verses in all the Bible on security of the believer. And as Baptists tonight, we are some of the few who believe in security of the believer. Most denominations do not believe in it. How do they get around verse 28? I don't know. Because it's very plain. I give them eternal life. That's simple. And they will never perish. It doesn't say they may never perish. It, it doesn't say they'll never perish unless they lose it. In fact, the word never there is what's called in Greek a double negative. It's the strongest denial you can make as far as the syntax goes. It's like screaming the word never. I, I won't do it tonight. But imagine reading that and screaming the word never. He's trying to get a point across. You're saved. You're not going to lose it. And then he says, and no one, not the wolf, not the religious leader, not even you, no one will snatch them out of my hand. Verse 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one's able to snatch them out of the father's hand. So here's the picture. You're saved. You're in Jesus' hand. He's got you. The Father God wraps himself around that. Whoever can get you out of his hand has to be stronger than Jesus and stronger than God. And that's nobody, including you. I had a church cross tell me one time. I asked them about this verse. And they said, well, uh, it, it, yeah, nobody can snatch us out of his hand, but you can get so close to the edge you can fall out. <laughs> He's not playing semantic games with us here. It is impossible for even one sheep to wriggle out of the good shepherd's care, period. So, nobody. And I don't believe it's because I'm a Baptist. I believe it because it's scriptural. That if you're saved and you're truly in Christ, you're not going to lose it. You are going to be his. No one's going to snatch you out of his hand. Verse 30, I and the Father are one. Now, what's interesting there, I won't go into a lot, of, a lot of detail there, but this is a strong affirmation of Jesus' deity. It means one in function and one in essence. Tonight, if I told you, well, I'm essentially God, you'd go, no, you're not. My wife would say, ah, I know for certain he's not. 
so what does essence mean? I'm a sin. You're, Jesus is God in function and in essence. And the, one, the word one there is not talking about the Godhead. He's not talking about, it's not, he doesn't use the, the, the masculine like father. He uses the neuter, which meant, which meant the father and the son are separate beings but one. So he combated two beliefs in that day that were heresies. And that one statement, he, he struck down both of them. I and the Father are one. Jesus is God. And did the religious leaders get it? You bet they did. Look at verse 31. As soon as he said, I and the Father are one, they picked up stones to stone him. And said, Jesus answered, I have shown you many good works from the Father. Which one of them are you going to stone me for? The word good there means noble and beautiful. I've done many noble things and beautiful things before you. Which one of those good works are you going to kill me for? And the Jews answered, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you being a man, make yourself God. No, folks, a man didn't make himself God. God made himself man. And that was the difference. First time here that they, they actually accused him of blasphemy. They hinted at it in chapter 8, verse 39. This is the first time a full right, outright, you have blasphemed and we're going to stone you to death because you have claimed to be God. Jesus, verse 34, said, he answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods, small g? If you call them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken or annulled or set aside, do not say of him who the Father consecrated and sent to the world, you're blaspheming because I said I am of the Son of God. I am the Son of God. Verse 37, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father's in me and I'm in the Father. And again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. How did he do that? Several times it says in the Bible, they, were, they got rocks, they're ready to kill him, they're grabbing him, and he escaped and walked through their midst. We don't really know. Some people say, well, he just uses supernatural force and like Superman and threw them all off and just kept going. Maybe. Or some say for some reason they just miraculously stopped and he just walked through their midst. Maybe. We don't know how it happened. But several times it tells us they're angry, they got rocks, they're just about to stone him, and he walked through their midst and left. Did it again. Verse 40, he went again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and he remained, and many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything John said about this man is true, and many believed him there. Significant, he left there and went right to where John baptized, and they came to him and believed. One other note, if you notice in verse 35, and then we'll close with this, Jesus is talking about Scripture, and parenthetically he says, oh, by the way, Scripture will never be broken. Did you like that? I love that. Because today we're living in a culture that says, well, this may be the Word of God, may not be the Word of God. I believe it if I want to, or I believe what culture says, or I believe what my, my political party says, or a lot of different things. And today, God's Word is kind of being devalued, but Jesus himself, words from his mouth, this book will never be broken. 
it's true, it's accurate. No matter the culture, no matter what, what, what culture believes or society believes, this book will always be right. And I love that statement he put in there. Scripture will never be broken. Well, that wraps up. We'll get with chapter 11 next week. Next week, John, I mean, Lazarus comes back to the life, and there's a lot there. That'll be fun to look at. Any questions or comments before we close tonight? Anything that you want to ask a question about or make a comment on? All right. Well, good to see you tonight. It's always good to study God's Word with you. Let's pray, and we'll close. Father, thank you tonight for your Word. Thank you for the words of Jesus. And God, we believe tonight that you are the good shepherd, the Messiah, the long-awaited descendant of David, the Israelites look for. You are him, and we believe in our sheep of your pasture. God, this week, guide us in all that we do as your sheep to listen to your voice and to follow you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. God bless you. Good to see you.